Well, welcome back. Good to see you again this evening. Most of you. Some of you I didn't see this morning, but it's good to have you here too. David is our topic tonight, wrapping up our six-part study of David. We could have done about a 60-part study of David probably, but uh, we limited it to six. So let's finish up tonight. And we actually are kind of finishing up what we started last week. We talked about the problem with Bathsheba last week in some detail. And uh, tonight we're going to kind of continue that in that we'll look at the, the ramifications of that. Uh, his life, David was the man after God's own heart. We'll spend most of our time tonight talking about that. Uh, he was a good king, a successful king, but his home life particularly was a mess, a disaster. And there's a reason for that. Uh, if you read through Second Samuel... Uh, starting in about chapter 12 and going through 18, you'll pretty well get the, the description of that uh, troubled home life and the family problems that he had. And we're just going to kind of pick and choose and go through those chapters and uh, kind of get the overall picture of it. I think we'll give you enough highlights that you can figure out things were not good. Uh, and let's start with figuring out why they weren't good. We mentioned this last week in Bathsheba's story when Nathan revealed things to him. Uh, first, let me get in Second Samuel instead of Chronicles. Be real helpful. Second Samuel 12, there it is. Right where the bookmark is, actually, believe it or not. Okay, Second Samuel 12 and verse 10. Uh, when Nathan came to tell David that he had sinned and uh, told him the parable of the person with the little ewe lamb and all of that, uh, after he let him know all of that, in verse 10 he said, Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house, because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. All right, there's the root of the problem. Because of what David did with Bathsheba and because of his attitude during that time and all that, the consequences were going to be that there's going to be a lot of trouble in his house. The sword will never depart. Now, doesn't mean God made all that happen. They were natural consequences of doing the wrong thing. You see a very dysfunctional, disastrous family today, there's usually a reason Somebody did something wrong somewhere, made bad choices, and those bad choices come back and reverberate on through generations even. So there's the root of the problem. Now let's just look at a few of the pieces of the problem. In verse 15 of chapter 12, we find out the baby uh, that Bathsheba had had with David dies. After Nathan had gone home, uh, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David, and he became ill. And we know the rest of the story. David pleaded. He wouldn't eat. He <clears throat> prayed. He wouldn't get out of his bed praying that the child would be spared. And the child wasn't. He died. And David got up and cleaned himself up and began to eat again and said there was nothing else he could do about it. But he could go to meet him someday. So there's the first one. The death entered the house. Uh, Bathsheba's baby died. Now if we go over to chapter 13, and we won't read any of this, it's 
definitely R-rated, but if you want to read the whole story, we've got a half-sibling rivalry. Uh, because David had a number of wives, which was another problem, and uh, although God allowed that to happen for some reason, there was always consequences to a multiple family like that. And David had one son by one wife, named the son was named Amnon, and then he had a daughter and a son, Absalom and Tamar, by another wife. Now, he had other children too, but those are the ones in this story. And being half-siblings, uh, Amnon lusted after Tamar. Uh, she was beautiful. And Amnon lusted after her. And go read the whole story, and we end up with rape, and we end up with murder. Absalom taking care of his half-brother because of what he had done to his sister Tamar. A horrible story, but, but a consequence of messed up families. Uh, problems existed. Go to chapter 14, and we can learn a little bit more about Absalom. And in verse 28, that's the verse I picked out. Listen to this. Uh, tell me what you think about David and Absalom's relationship. Absalom lived two years in Jerusalem without seeing the king's face. All right. Now, David loved Absalom, but there was an estrangement there. Uh, this family didn't function well. Uh, Absalom didn't see his daddy for two years. So they were not just estranged, we're going to find out. It's worse than that. But they were at least estranged. Go down to chapter 15, and we will read the first six verses of that, because we'll see how Absalom started to conspire against his father David. Uh, the son wanted to take over. Now listen to this in chapter 15. <clears throat> in the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and with 50 men to run ahead of him. So he glorified himself a bit. Uh, he would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. Whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him, What town are you from? And he would answer, your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, uh, look, uh, your claims are valid and proper, but there's no representative of the king to hear you. And Absalom would add, if only I were appointed judge in the land. Then everyone who had a complaint or case would come to me, and I would see that he gets justice. Anybody sense a little politician working here? Yeah, a lot of politicians. Uh, also, <clears throat> whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. <clears throat> Excuse me. Absalom behaved in this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice, and so he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. All right, here's the beginning of the conspiracy. Absalom wants to dethrone his father. He wants to be king, so he starts politicking. He waits at the city gate. He tells everybody, I'll take care of you if I could. And he acts like everybody's his best friend in the world. And they all like him. They all think Absalom's a great guy. Plus, we know he was good-looking and all the other, had other good attributes. So Absalom was selling himself. But not just because he was... Uh, uh, aspiring to big positions because he wanted to bring down daddy. 
Okay? This, a lot of this was against his father. So, uh, he was plotting this overthrow. He was beginning a rebellion. And you may think, well, that's about as bad as it could get. No, it gets worse. <laughs> chapter 16, chapter 16, verse 21, uh, he got a little advice from one of his advisors. And this is what his advisor told him about how to really get to his dad and make his dad look even worse. So in verse 21, uh, his advisor said, Lie with your father's concubines, whom he left to take care of the palace. Then all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench in your father's nostrils, and the hands of everyone with you will be strengthened. So listen to this. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and he lay with his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Okay? David, once again, had too many wives and concubines and things that kings uh, thought they had the right to, I guess. And the son put a tent on the roof of the palace and let everybody see him consorting with the concubines. A little public humiliation. No, not a little public humiliation. A huge public humiliation. Uh, Chapter 18, Absalom, after all of this, David still loved Absalom. He still wanted the best for him. Now listen to how this last part of the story goes between him and Absalom. Uh, Let's go up to chapter 18, verse 5, first of all. And we're getting ready to go out to war. David's got his army divided into three groups and three generals over them, and Joab's one of them. And verse 5, the king commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. And all the troops heard the king giving orders concerning Absalom to each of the commanders. Okay, After all that he had done, David still told his generals, if you find Absalom, take it easy on him. Yeah, be gentle to him. Well, the story goes that Absalom was on his mule. He was riding. Uh, he had a huge head of hair, and it got caught in the branches of an oak tree, uh, entangled him there. Joab and, well, one of his... Joab's people saw him first and went and told Joab. And Joab said, why didn't you kill him? The guy said, man, I'm not touching the king's son. I heard the king say, be gentle with him. And Joab said, well, I'm tired of this kid. He's causing too much trouble. You know, I'm David's general, and I'm going to get rid of him. So he took his javelins and went and killed Absalom and then sent word to David that the young man Absalom was dead. Now, if you read at the end of chapter 18... When the reporters came to tell David what was happening, look in verse 29. The king asked, is the young man Absalom safe? That's what he wanted to know. Out of all the battle reports and everything, is Absalom okay? And then we got another one that came in in verse 32. uh, The king asked the Cushite, is the young man Absalom safe? I want to know about him. And finally the Cushite said, nope, Absalom's, Absalom's dead. Uh, go down to verse 33. The king went up, to, the king was shaken. He went up to the room over the gateway and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. After everything Absalom had done to him, uh, this still broke David's heart. This 
is an unbelievable picture of a dysfunctional family. All kinds of bad things happen here. Death and rape and murder and estrangement and rebellion and public humiliation and finally death of Absalom. That's the way it was. That's the consequences. Because of what David did, all this rippled up. Now, we may be sitting here and thinking, well, that doesn't seem quite fair. I mean, David was forgiven, wasn't he? Yes. Nathan told him, said, you're forgiven. God knows your heart. You're not going to die for this. But the consequences are still there. And we talked about that a little bit last week. But let's draw a couple of lessons from that this week uh, at the end, bottom of our page there. Uh, first of all, go over to, back to 2 Samuel 12. And my first point is under the lessons is that sin, although forgiven, still reflects on God. Okay? There, there's consequences. We'll talk about that next. But even though you're forgiven, what we've done still reflects on God. So listen to what was said in verses 13 and 14. Uh, after David admitted his sin, David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, the Lord's taken away your sin. You're not going to die. But, listen to this, because by doing this, you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt. The son born, will you, born to you will die. David was God's representative. He was the king of Israel. He was the king of God's people. He was his representative on earth at that time, if you want to put it that way. And he did this public sin that created all these problems in front of all the enemies. And the enemies looked and said, hmm, if that's the God of Israel, he's not so special. Can you put that in the 21st century? You see any people on TV or anywhere that claim to be God's great servant and representative and they mess up big time, what do the enemies say? <laughs> yeah, look at Christianity. Christianity is really great stuff. Look at that guy. Okay. That's the problem. And even though the sin's forgiven, I'm not, I don't know about the televangelists and all that, but let's assume they're forgiven. The, the reflection on God is still there. So there's one lesson about sin, is that even though we're forgiven for it, it still reflects on God. The second one is, even though it's forgiven, the consequences are always there. Okay? Galatians 6, 7, we reap what? What we sow. Law of nature. Whatever you plant, that's what you reap. Okay? David planted sin. He planted problems in his family, and he reaped the consequences. Even though God understood his heart was broken and he forgave him and all of that, the consequences continued to ripple up. So those are two basic laws of sin, even though forgiven. Still reflect on God and still cause consequences. All right, so that kind of wraps up the Bathsheba story. Now let's turn over to the back page and see if we can wrestle through this question. Um, I actually did cover a few good things about David, but it seems like we kind of looked at a lot of bad things. Uh, maybe that's because we remember bad things 
more easily, but uh, it seems like we talked a lot of things he did wrong. Uh, if we looked at his whole life, we'd see a whole lot more good things, I'm sure. But anyhow, with the things he did wrong, I mean, just the story tonight we read. How do you call a guy like that a man after God's own heart? Where's that come from? And God himself called him that. Okay. And Peter re- repeated it, or Stephen repeated it in the, the sermon uh, in Acts, that this is what God called him. Well, think through these meanings with me, uh, possible meanings. First of all, A, it could mean that David's heart was exactly like God's heart. And we all look and say, hold it now, that can't be it. Because nobody's perfectly like God. You know, no, nobody's like that. So it can't mean he had exactly the heart of God, the mind, the will, the, all of the other things that we consider when we say heart. Maybe it means, and B, that David's heart was like God. It was after his heart. It was, it was like his heart. We see a copy of something. We see a creation, a piece of art, a car or something. And we say, well, it looks kind of like so-and-so. That's modeled after this other thing. Maybe that's what it means. His heart was after God's heart. It was like it. Or C, maybe it means David was a man who pursued after God's own heart. Do you ever think of that one? He wanted God's heart. He wanted to know God's heart. He wanted to know the will of God. He wanted to be closer to the heart of God. Remember, Paul said a whole lot of things like that. I want to know Christ. Uh, maybe that's what it means, that it was, he was a man after pursuing, wanting God's heart, wanting to know it and have a heart like it. Uh, I like either B or C. I like C the best. It just seems like the best explanation of it to me. And if we look at some characteristics, they'll reflect B and C being good possibilities, and I think C even better. Uh, and these are some of the things that we have talked about, so there's a little bit of review. Remember how submissive David was to authority? First of all, he did what his daddy told him whenever his daddy told him anything. And second, he was submissive to Saul. Even when Saul was abusive, even when Saul was pursuing him, all that, he still honored God's servant, the king. So he was submissive to what God had ordained. God put the father in charge. God put Saul in charge. David submitted to them. David was jealous for God, protective of God. Remember, all the Israelites signed up, Goliath cursing Israel and cursing Israel's God and all that. Everybody else just standing around wondering how we're going to get out of this. Remember what David said? Who's this guy? Who's this guy messing with my Jehovah? You know, I'm not going to put up with that. Against all the odds, against when we talked about that, when we talked about Goliath. But that was his question. Who is this Philistine? that thinks he can say those things about my Lord. He was very protective and jealous of God. He desired God's plan. 
Remember when he needed to bring the ark back or desired to bring the ark back? And it was out of place because Saul hadn't brought it back. In fact, I almost did this page as a study between Saul and David. If you go back and do that, you can see a huge contrast. Saul was not a man after God's own heart. Uh, All the things that we're saying good about David, when we look at Saul, uh, he didn't do those things. He did almost the opposite thing. In fact, he was to the point where God took his spirit away from him. His spirit departed from him. Um, So David desired God's plan. The ark was supposed to be in the right place. David wanted it in the right place. He messed up, but he made it right. Next, David desired worship. And the story is about him following the ark into town when they finally got it there and him dancing in the streets and embarrassing his wife, but he was worshiping. Uh, He knew that the Lord inhabits praise, is what one of the Psalms says, I believe. Next one, David was humble rather than proud. There's a real contrast between him and Saul. Uh, remember when they said, you get to marry the king's daughter, uh, David said, hold it. He said, I'm just a poor man. He said, <laughs> he said I don't think I'm, I'm up to that. Uh, he didn't see himself as anybody wonderful and famous, but Saul did see himself that way. Uh, the last one, or yeah, the last one, uh, which I think is the, the clincher of why he's a man who wanted God's heart, who pursued after it. Sin broke his heart. Uh, God is so holy he can't be close to sin. He can't have it in his presence. And David wanted to be like that. He wasn't many times. He didn't think sometimes and allowed the flesh to run things. But when he was confronted with it, when, when he was made aware of it, it broke his heart. He repented immediately. Once he got what Nathan was trying to tell him, he said, I've sinned against the Lord. And it goes on to tell us he watered his couch with his tears. Broke his heart. He, he didn't want to do something that hurt God. Now, you read Saul's stories. Every time Samuel confronted him for doing something wrong, remember what Saul's response was? And I know we hadn't studied Saul, but his response was, He had excuses. He said, well, I I thought this. Well, I thought you told me this, and I thought I'd try this, and I thought this would be a good idea. That wasn't David's response at all. Once he figured out what he had done, he said, I've sinned. Whole different attitude there. And I think that's a key even today that we can see people. And I'm not telling you I can look at people and judge whether they got a good heart or not, but... I can get some indications, and I think you can too, is how they react in situations like this when they're confronted by sin or tempted by sin or whatever. Uh, And I think you'll understand if I just tell you a little parable. Uh, There are some people, and we'll make this a parable. I could come out and tell you that these are actual people that have come to talk to me, but we'll call it a parable. Uh, some people in this parable come and ask a question about something they want to do. Do you think this is all right? Do you think the Bible would agree that I could do this? 
And in the parable, they tell me, I've decided what I want to do. Now, what's the Bible say about that? And in the parable, the preacher says, well, the Bible says this, and my wisdom says that wouldn't be a very good idea. And they say, well, I'm going to do it anyway. They don't really care what God has to say. They've made their mind up. They're not after God's heart. They're after their own heart. Compare that to a person that in this parable came to see me and told me that they were, uh, this is hard to do in the third person. Uh, (laughs) All right, I'll fess up. She came to me and said, I'm friends with this person and we both have a history of failed marriages and here's why and here's the true history and here's what happened and all of that. And we're friends right now. I know him. But before I even stay friends with him, since we're both single and all that, and I like him as a friend, I want to know what the Bible says about the possibility of us ever being married. I'm absolutely, that's not even in my head now, but I want to know what God would say about it if it went that direction. And I told her, I said, well, from what you've told me and the history and all that, I believe you both could be married if you if it gets to that point. And she thanked me and left. Now, I guarantee if I'd have told her, then no, the Bible says right here that that's not possible. She wouldn't have anything else to do with that guy. You know why? She was a woman after God's own heart. She wanted God's heart. That's what she pursued. That's what she wanted. There's a huge difference there. There's a huge difference between Saul and David. And we can see in people today a a huge difference. And I think when you look at it that way and you look back through David's life, yeah, he messed up a number of times, but he wanted God's heart. That's what his spirit was. That's what his desire was. All right, let's look close by reading two psalms, and then we'll be done. I think these tell us something about David's heart. Psalm 42. Just read the first part of it. We usually should have told Tim to sing this one, but I didn't know he was going to read it. Psalm 42. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night, while men say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I used to go with the multitude, leading the procession to the house of God with shouts of joy and thanksgiving among the festive throng, all of that. But look at what he starts out with. Like a deer thirst for water. And we know that song, and it probably means something to us, but if you read Psalm 42, it ought to mean more to you. My soul thirsts for the living God. Go over to Psalm 51. And this one, the book tells us, was written after Nathan came to him. While his heart was broken, while he was watering the couch with his tears, he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. 
Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Like that's hyperbole there. You're just thinking how awful he is. He says, surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. That's what he wanted. He wanted a pure heart. He wanted God's heart. David was not perfect. Doesn't take much teaching to figure that out. Uh, He wasn't perfect, but he was after God's own heart. And we don't have to be perfect. But if we're pursuing God's heart, we have a blessed assurance that that's good enough. Let's stand and sing blessed assurance. And if you need to come, come to the front.